Welcome back. I'm Shane McClelland. I'm Lori Gum. And these are the Q Files. In this episode, we will continue the search for the 19-year-old African-American woman, Hester Foster, who was the first woman executed by the state of Ohio, along with William Graham, who were hung simultaneously on February 9th, 1844. And it seemed, for the most part, that Hester Foster has been left out of the history books. Nothing existed about her life story except for some scanty newspaper articles about the execution, and a mention or two in several Ohio history books. We were now determined to find out who the real Hester Foster really was. Our initial interest in Hester had been sparked by the first-hand witness accounts that her spectral image had often been encountered by the staff of the Columbus Cultural Arts Museum here in downtown Columbus. The fact was made even more compelling when realizing that the site of the original gallows where she was hung, then at Mount and Second Streets, existed just one half block from the Cultural Center, which was built in 1861 on the site of the first Ohio Penitentiary, and the only building in the area to have survived demolition over the last century and a half. And although the apparition of Hester often appeared to be white, her old-timey clothes, as it was said, suggested it was indeed, more than likely, the ghost of Hester Foster. As we stated in the last episode, Bucky Cutright of Columbus Ghost Tours had been telling Hester's story for years and taking ghost tours into the basement of the Cultural Arts Center, where Hester's ghost was most often seen. But there had never been a real ghost hunt. You're probably guessing what comes next. Yes, Lori and I conducted a ghost hunt, and we indeed found Hester Foster right away. You can hear the entirety of the ghost hunt in our last episode. Through the use of dowsing rods, Hester told us many things, including the fact that she was not from Ohio or Kentucky, but instead from Louisiana, and that her family had come from enslaved people there. She also told us that the charge of aiding and abetting the assault of a woman was true, and had indeed landed her in the Ohio penitentiary a charge Lori and I found very unusual for the early 1800s, and that she had also killed her fellow penitentiary inmate, Louisa White, by hitting her over the head with a fire shovel. It was this murder that ultimately sent her to the gallows. After the hunt, Shane and I began to try and locate some public information that would prove what Hester had told us. We searched databases of enslaved people in the South and actually located a foster plantation in Louisiana that we thought just might be where Hester was born. Bucky also scoured through Ohio histories and libraries and connected with several Ohio historians to find out more. But it all came to a dead end we could not find any information that would help us better understand Hester's life and prove that our conversation with her had been authentic. We were almost ready to give up. And then one night, we got a message from Bucky that said, I think I found Hester Foster. We were ecstatic and begged Bucky for more details. Where? How? What had he found? Knowing about Hester and and trying to find more about her life has uh, been pretty frustrating in terms of research because there was never really a whole lot there. She's just turned up a little bit, a glimpse of her here, a glimpse of her there, kind of like the uh, apparition that's seen at the uh, Cultural Arts Center. Over time, it, we really weren't having much luck. And and 
whenever you, um, whenever, whenever you guys approach me about doing, uh, a podcast about her and a ghost hunt and, uh, challenged me to find out more i knew that there probably wasn't going to be any answers but i accepted that challenge and said we'll find her and i looked and i looked and i looked and i wasn't finding her anywhere any evidence of hester beyond these scant things that sometimes would uh, contradict one another and i eventually contacted a resource librarian who had sent me back a list of articles and links that I had already seen a million times over. And I thought we were at a dead end. And then a couple of weeks later, I happened to open this sort of junk email account that I had submitted uh, this inquiry through. And there was another librarian that had written me. And it was also a list of things that I had already seen and um, very thin and uh, kind of shallow uh, material concerning Hester Foster, but then there was one link to a WorldCat listing for a murder pamphlet, the life and crimes of William Graham and Hester Foster to be executed in Columbus, Ohio on February 9th, 1844. Uh, And instantly I knew that that was it. That was different. And if there was going to be any real story, uh, beyond what is was currently known about Hester Foster, it would be in that. Wow, this was it. And what exactly is a murder pamphlet? Well, according to the U.S. National Library of Medicine, ever since the invention of movable type in the mid-1400s, the public's appetite for tales of shocking murders, true crime, has been an enduring aspect of the market for printed material. For more than five centuries, murder pamphlets have been hawked on street corners, town squares, taverns, coffee houses, newsstands, and bookshops. Typically, a local printer would put together a pamphlet that claimed to be a true account of a murder, consisting of a narrative, trial transcript, and or written confession of the murderer before his or her execution. And get this, Bucky also found that there were only two existing copies in the entire country. One was in a library in Virginia. The other was right down the road at the Cincinnati History and Archives Museum. Really? What were the chances? Bucky immediately made an appointment with the library, and because of COVID restrictions, only one other person could go with him. Shane and I decided it would be me. The date was set, Thursday, May 6th at 1.30 p.m. We hopped into my brand new, cool, khaki-gray Lesbaru Crosstrek and headed excitedly down to the Queen City, with renewed hope and hearts beating wildly. We arrived just a little early. The Cincinnati History Library and Archives is daunting and inspiring itself. It had originally been built in 1933 as Union Terminal, where during World War II, it was a point of departure for hundreds of thousands of service members throughout the Midwest. It then sat near ruin until it was renovated in 2016 and turned into the museum. According to Wired Magazine, while locals had suspected a comic book connection for decades, the Cincinnati Enquirer confirmed in 2009 that Hanna-Barbera background supervisor Al Gmuir had been inspired by Union Terminal when he worked on what would become the Justice League's HQ. This is a perfect location to finally unearth Hester's story. We were indeed looking to find some sort of justice for Hester herself, and the building only lent more import to the occasion. And we must admit we did, just for a moment, 
feel like superheroes faced with a mighty just task. After taking some quick selfies in front of the headquarters of the Justice League, I just had to say that, we entered the front doors and were awed by the largest half dome in the Western Hemisphere, lit by the bright light of the afternoon with its deep, jaw-dropping sunset colors. We finally regathered our wits about us and headed downstairs to the archives. We checked in in the library and went to the back and returned with a simple manila folder. She handed it to me and the anticipation was overwhelming. We moved to the library table, set the folder down, and we both just sat there and stared at it for a moment. Are you ready, I asked. Yes, I said. Bucky opened the folder, and there it was. The Confessions of Hester Foster. It was indeed a pamphlet, yet it was 21 pages long, with the first section being the tale of William Graham, who was also executed with Hester. This pamphlet, no doubt, sold to the public as 12 to 20,000 of them gathered to watch Graham and Foster be hung by the neck until dead. And there was little doubt that Bucky and I were two of the few people to view it in over 177 years. At page 16, we sat in awe as we started to read Hester's true story. The very first line was memorable. I was born in Philadelphia on the 25th day of December, 1821. Philadelphia? Wow, we hadn't expected that. And I must admit, I had a little disappointment that she hadn't claimed Louisiana as her birthplace. I mean, after all, that is what she told us at the ghost hunt. And it would also mean that Hester was 23 years old when she was executed, not 19. We continued on. And if that wasn't enough, the next line took our breath. My father was a white man, a native of Ireland, my mother an Indian, but I do not recollect to what tribe she belonged. Bucky turned to me in stark disbelief, my eyes wide and confused. Hester Foster was not even African-American. We were stunned. Every previous newspaper article or book mention about Hester always claimed that she was African-American, but it did explain why her apparition appeared as a white woman. That certainly made sense now. It was official. Hester was of Irish indigenous descent. Bucky continued on. They were wealthy and owned a large amount of property, the most of which came by my mother. When I was about three years old, my parents left Philadelphia and moved to Frederick County, Virginia, near a small town called Woodstock, where they lived about three months when they had difficulty and separated. My mother went to Cincinnati, Ohio, and took me with her and left me there with a colored woman by the name of Catherine Foster, who was a relation to my mother, and in a few days returned to Philadelphia, leaving me in Cincinnati. This would have been in 1824. And Hester, already abandoned by her parents to an African-American family relative, would have only been three years old. Already tragic, but interestingly, she did indeed have African-American family named Foster. Maybe that side of her family did indeed, at some point, come from enslaved people in the South, where many of them named Foster came from Louisiana. Bucky went on. About five years after this, my mother and father both came to Cincinnati. I think my mother arrived a few days before my father. He was then the captain of a steamboat, the New York Champion, upon which he came to Cincinnati. My mother took me on board the Champion to see my father, but they did not speak together. In a few days, they both left Cincinnati. This was the last time I saw my father. 
but have been informed that he is dead. So at eight years old, Hester was abandoned again. It would be a theme throughout her short life. Over the following years, she would be handed over to many, some family and some even seemingly mere family acquaintances or near strangers. Many of the people who would ultimately take care of her were, as she said, colored in their then vernacular. She would be supported and cared for by many African-Americans. Eventually, Catherine Foster, her guardian, died and left her with her daughter, Jane Foster, who would eventually take her to Louisville, Kentucky, and turn her over to a sister named Lydia Ramsey. Lydia would also leave Hester and turn her over to a colored woman by the name of Amelia Lyons. Bucky suddenly looked up from the page at me and finished the sentence. With whom I went to New Orleans on board of the Lady Franklin. Bucky smiled and looked at me wide-eyed. Lori, Louisiana. Louisiana, indeed. Hester would spend the next 18 months in New Orleans and then a large part of her teenage years shuffling between New Orleans and Louisville. At the ghost hunt, Hester had identified the letter L as important to her origins in life. Louisville and Louisiana would both fit that bill. Some time passed, again, with Hester being dropped off and handed over to person after person, most of them African-American women. And then, when it appears that she was somewhere around 15 years old. My mother came to live in Louisville and rented a house on Walnut Street. She had about 20 slaves with her and lived in grand style. I left Ms. Franks and went to live with her. There was a white man living with her who was 70 years old by the name of William Craig, with whom I soon became familiar, and by whom I had two children at one birth, both girls. Uh, okay, hang on. Hester's mother owned many slaves, another fact we hadn't suspected, and good golly, as best as we can estimate, she was 15 years old when she bore the children of a 70-year-old man. Bucky and I sat back for a moment sighing heavily at the overwhelming and quickly changing story plot of Hester's personal narrative. Wow. And believe it or not, it took another twisted turn and a very tragic one for Hester, the event that ultimately changed her life and headed her in the long and winding direction towards the gallows. Well, I lived with my mother. She purchased two more slaves, a woman and a man, both of whom she gave to me. But in a very short time, we found out they were related to us, and I set them free, and gave them money and clothes, and they went to Pittsburgh. I remained with my mother for about 18 months when Craig and I had a dispute, and I left Louisville and came to Cincinnati on board to Paul Jones, and lived a while with a family of colored people by the name of Wilson on Columbus Street. About two weeks after I arrived in Cincinnati, my mother passed through on her way to Pittsburgh. She had my two children along with her, who were then about eight months old. I've never seen my mother since. And she continued, I have been in the city of Cincinnati and its vicinity from that time until I came to the Ohio Penitentiary, where I committed the crime for which I expect in a few days to be launched into eternity. Wow. And then came the bombshell. While I was in Cincinnati that last time, I received two letters from my mother, who then lived in Pittsburgh, one of which informed me that one of the slaves which I had set free had killed my two children and William Craig, their father. From the time I received this letter, which affected me very much, I became reckless 
and have ever since felt the most indifference as to my fate. I took to drink and plunged into vice and wickedness of almost every description. So let's take a moment here and pause and deeply understand the horror of Hester's life. She would have only been 16 or 17 years old without family support, without a home, without money, with nothing. And the terrible truth that a slave she set free murdered her twin daughters must have been something nearly impossible to bear. Her life would continue spiraling downward. In the summer of 1839 in Cincinnati, she came into the company of a woman named Maria Brunlow, who Hester described as mulatto. One afternoon, they were drinking and happened upon a white woman. She guessed to be around 35 years of age. The woman was looking for a place to live, and Maria said that if she would come with her, she would help her find a place. At that point, Hester decided to part and head home on Columbia Street. She would make it almost home to the foot of the hill when she observed Maria, the white woman, and two Negro men, as she described, one named Smith and the other named John Wells, sitting at the top of a hill. We'll let Hester pick up the story from there. Maria asked me if I would go into the woods with them. I inquired what they were going to do in the woods, and she said she would tell me when I got there. I consented to go, and we all started together. We went about 10 rods from the road. They all passed over a fence and stopped at the foot of a small hill, which obstructed the view from the road. I remained on the fence. Maria took hold of the white woman, threw her down, and stood with her feet upon her hair when John Wells proceeded forcibly to accomplish the object which I suppose they had in view when they had left the road, in which I deem it unnecessary to more particular describe, as the reader cannot help understanding what the brutal act was. After John Wells had accomplished this object, Maria still held her down and asked Smith if he was not going to do the same, which Smith refused to do and advised me not to touch her. Hester continues. Maria then let her up, but not yet satisfied Maria and John beat her with clubs. But whether they injured her seriously or not, I cannot say. When they left her, I went home to Isaac Watkins, and they went towards Cincinnati. This I do solemnly declare to be all that I know about the transaction. It has been rumored and believed by many that I killed her. I know nothing about it unless she died from the effects of the blows that John and Maria inflicted upon her before alluded to. Or they might have returned and killed her after I left them, but I do not know whether they did or not. I have never heard of her afterwards. And so the law cut up with Hester Foster. She continues. I was arrested for the crime of assisting to commit a rape upon a white woman of whom I have just spoken. This was in the month of September, 1839. And in October following, I was tried, convicted, and sentenced to hard labor in the Ohio Penitentiary for a term of 20 years. John Wells was arrested and tried for the same offense at the same time I was and received the same sentence and is now in the penitentiary. Maria Brunlow and Smith went to Canada. I consider my sentence a hard one. I do not think that I deserved it, for I had no hand in the crime than to look on. Maria Harris, who was a witness against me, swore that I had told her that I had killed the woman, which is false. I never told her so. Yet, as brutal as this story is, that was not the crime that sent Hester Foster to the gallows. She continues, 
I arrived at the Ohio Penitentiary on the 10th day of November, 1839, where I remained in harmony with my fellow prisoners for about a year when a cool feeling began to arise between myself and a female prisoner by the name of Louisa White. We quarreled frequently, some of the prisoners taking part with one and some with the other. The hostile feeling which began with us soon extended itself to nearly all of the prison in our apartment, which soon put an end to the harmonious feeling which had prevailed among us. This state of things increased. Louisa and Hester would continue with their fights, sometimes even being whipped by the guards for doing so. Eventually, the prison officials separated the women, putting Hester and Evelyn Jones into a cell that was directly above Louisa White's cell. And both cells could be accessed by a back stairway. Hester and Evelyn's cell door also had a bolt on the front of it that could only be released from the outside of the cell. According to Hester, Louisa would frequently come up to their cell, quarrel with Hester, and then open the door threatening them bodily harm. Hester complained to the guards who told her that if Louisa did it again, Hester should take something and knock her in the head and he would see that she was not punished for it. It seems Hester took his words to heart. Hester would tell the story this way. Things continued on in this way until the 16th day of March last. Note here, that would have been March of 1843. In the evening of that day, at sunset, after the guard had been in our apartment and went off, Louisa came up to our door, opened it, came in, and said she had come to murder us, and then struck Evelyn Jones on the arm with a small shovel which she had brought with her. I proceeded to the door, and when I got there, Evelyn had hold of the shovel, trying to wrest it out of the hands of Louisa. I asked Louisa what she had come for, and she said that she had come for murder. To which I replied, if that is what you have come for, you shall have it to your satisfaction. And then I ran back to the fireplace and picked up a large shovel. Hannah Gillespie tried to wrest it from me, but I pushed her away from me and ran up and struck Louisa on the top of the head. She then let go of the shovel, which she had, and put her hand on her head and started to go downstairs and stopped on the steps about halfway down. I followed her and struck her again on the side of the head with a shovel, which knocked her down, and she rolled to the bottom of the stairs. I then went upstairs, and as I was going up, I met Evelyn going down with a small shovel in her hand. I looked back and saw Evelyn strike her once as she lay on the floor. I only struck her twice. I had not deliberately made up my mind to kill her, but my passion was so violent that without knowing or caring what the consequences might be, committed the deed for which my life is to pay the forfeit. Hester concludes this incident with these words. I have seen fit thus publicly to give an account of my life and course of crime, that others may profit from it, that they may see wherein I have erred, that they may shun as they would the poisonous fangs of the deadly reptile, the company and associates of those designing people whose characters are the blackest stamp, whose example is the most criminal and reckless, and whose meat and drink is in the witnessing the sufferings of those unfortunate victims whose wretchedness they have been the sole and only cause of. And there you have it. Finally, the real story of Hester Foster. But is it? As we discussed last season in our episode, When Lincoln Could Fly, the WPA slave narratives, which were documented in the late 1930s, were no doubt the true stories of African-Americans that had once been slaves. 
However, the agenda of the questions asked and the concluding written account that presented this documentation was ultimately written by white people. The same can be said for Hester's confessions. And let's remember that this was a document that was sold for profit and had a vested interest in being sensational in order to drive sales. And they probably made a killing on this one. Interestingly enough, at the end of her confession, there is a notation of her mark, not her actually signing the document. This would imply that Hester was, more than likely, illiterate. Within the detailed account of her life, not once does she mention any schooling or education, in the tone of Christian moralizing at the end, about the characters of the blackest stamp and the bad company into which she had fallen, is characteristic of murder pamphlets themselves. And Hester makes no mention of going to church or even God in her narrative. But the existence of such details in her story and her seeming willingness to confess her guilt for her crimes made us more inclined to its veracity. So while we do believe most of the facts of Hester's account, it is important to remember that these are not, more than likely, her actual words. But we do think it is her actual story. Furthermore, the reason that the person of Hester Foster is always reported as being African-American likely stems from the one-drop rule, which was a 19th century rule that said if you had even just one drop of unwhite blood, it simply made you 100% African-American, or at least not white. Newspapers in the 1840s did not often bother to differentiate between indigenous people and African-Americans. It also reminds us that journalists at the time who covered the execution undoubtedly did not refer to the murder pamphlet for their information. With that said, after we have discovered who Hester Foster really was, what is the point to all this, you might ask? Well, we do truly believe in the importance of telling people's authentic stories, and Hester Foster is a seminal figure in the history of Ohio, and in the history of women and particularly people of color in Ohio. Her true story deserves to be told. And in the end, it is in reality the story of a young girl of color who grew up without family and was psychologically and mentally derailed after the murder of her two young daughters in a particularly horrifying manner that few could overcome even in the best of circumstances. It is also the story of community, African-Americans that stepped up and cared for Hester Foster when her own family could or would not. And maybe most importantly, it is the story of a nascent Ohio criminal justice system that sent a 17-year-old girl to prison without any hopes of rehabilitation or self-actualization. It is, in many ways, the story of Ohio itself, a free state in 1844 as it began to grapple with social injustice, sexual violence, race relations, economic inequality, capital punishment, and the fate of its more marginalized citizens. And just as a note here, there have been 467 executions in Ohio since Hester Foster was hung. And it says much that in 1844, Hester Foster's story was not even worth telling except in a murder pamphlet. And in the end, we have no evidence whatsoever that Hester's story is a queer one, as we once suspected. But at the ghost hunt, 
Hester did tell us that she had a sexual relationship with the white woman who was raped, the event that sent her to prison. But one does have to wonder why Marissa Brunlow, Smith, and John Wells targeted that specific woman for rape, and why they were so invested in making Hester watch, as she was simply on her way home. Was this sexual violence in retaliation for a homosexual affair? And one between a woman of color and a white woman? We are pretty sure that this would not have been mentioned in Hester's confession, and we did not expect to find confirmation of this suspicion there. But the circumstances and the sentence still seem odd and seem worth mentioning. This we will never know. We asked Bucky for some final words. After discovering the murder pamphlet, I was reminded of the various times in human history when the presence of ghosts was thought to be linked with some sort of injustice that had been committed, like a spectral bride that manifests to implicate her spouse in murder, or an unseen force that directs an embattled heir to an important hidden document. These types of hauntings are quite literally the oldest on record. Hester's life was filled with so much tragic mishandling and her identity presented with such vague inaccuracies throughout the years that I can't help but wonder if her spirit has lingered with hope that someone at some point would eventually share an account of who she really was and the life that she knew. So now that that's happened, will she continue to appear at the Cultural Arts Center or have we given her some type of resolution and peace? Time will tell. It's said that when you visit places of legend and haunts of ghosts, you become a part of their story. With that in mind, I want to thank Hester Foster for allowing myself, alongside Lori and Shane, to become a part of hers. Hester's confession ends with these words. In the course of my foregoing statements, I have given the principal incidents of my life, so far as my recollection serves me. For those who have, in a great measure, been the occasion of the various crimes which I have committed, in that they enticed me from a comparatively virtuous and honorable course of life to one of reckless, wicked, and criminal nature, I have only to leave on record my sorrow for their depraved natures and my hopes for speedily abandoning of their villainous course before they are, as I am about to be, hurried into the presence of a just God, with all their deep and damning sins hanging about them, unrepented of, and themselves unprepared. Having thus made a statement which contains the truth and nothing but the truth, I leave it for the world to decide upon, for the world to say whether my crimes are not somewhat mitigated by the fact that I have been thrown into such bad company. And so, on the morning of February 9, 1844, 23-year-old Hester Foster put on her grave clothes and climbed into the wagon for the slow, somber, and sad ride to the gallows. She arrived and climbed up the stairs and then viewed the noose that was waiting for her. She was visibly shaken, and when asked for final words, she muttered something that no one could hear or remember. She knelt on her knees and prayed. Then she stood and shook the hand of the sheriff as a noose was placed over her head and fastened tightly around her neck. Then... She stepped timidly onto the trap door and was ushered into eternity. Thanks so much for joining us for season two of The Q Files. 
And thanks again so much to Bucky Cutright for helping us discover Hester's story. It was a fun and thrilling ride. You can find out more about Bucky. Contact him or schedule a ghost tour at columbusghosttours.com. Join us next fall for season three, where we'll continue to tell the stories of people whose stories are not considered worth telling. And a bunch of really spooky stuff, too. This show was created and produced by me, Shane McClelland, and Lori Gum. Until next time, friends. Be weird. Stay curious. These are the Q-Files. Q-Files.